Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. It's been my joy over the years to perform a lot of wedding ceremonies on this very stage. And uh, every time I start off a wedding ceremony, I always start with the exact same sentence. I always say, they say that love is a feeling, and I suppose that everybody in this room has witnessed the feelings of love that you have one for another, and that's real. But today, your wedding day, you're making a promise that your love is a decision, a choice that you're making for the rest of your life. You're locking that in. You're saying that of every other human being on the face of this planet, this is the person that you want to serve for the rest of your life. And that's a tall order. And we've been talking in this series, Summer of Love 2, Love Grows Up, about sustainable love, love that can actually last through a lifetime of marriage. And we've talked about the fact that that's kind of an uncommon thing in our culture. And as a matter of fact, one of the issues with that is that what God calls love is not necessarily what our culture calls love. We talked last week about the fact that usually when somebody in our culture is talking about love, they're talking about a feeling. In the Greek language, which is what your New Testament is written in, um, there are different words for different kinds of love. There's the feelings of passion, of sexual desire, feelings of warm affection for another person, feelings of deep friendship for another person, and all of these things are types of love. And we use one word in the English language to cover all of that territory. So a lot of times, and it's fair that this happens, a lot of times we say love, we're just talking about feelings. Really, we're talking about feelings of attraction, which tend to be a great starter in the relationship, but not a great engine to propel it down the road. Then we talked last week about the fact that there's one more Greek word for love that's called agape love, which is the kind of love that God shows us. It's God's love. And when we're commanded by God in the scripture to love others, God never commands us to feel love for someone else, but rather he commands us to agape love uh, or to make a choice to live the lifestyle of love to those who are in the sphere of our influence. Now, what does it mean to live a lifestyle of love? We said this is a feeling kind of love and agape is a doing kind of love. What does the doing love look like? This is in 1 Corinthians 13. The apostle Paul says, that real love, agape love, is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. So notice in that passage, as we talked about last week, nowhere in that passage does the Bible tell us what agape feels like because agape isn't a feeling. Agape is a choice. It's a decision. It's a lifestyle. It's not how love feels. It's how love behaves. And what the Bible is telling us is that when we make this choice to love others the way that God loves us, we will have permanent, lasting, sustainable 
life-changing love, the kind of love that can propel a marriage from start to finish in a rewarding and fulfilling way. So that's what we're talking about. Now, last week, I kind of almost poked fun a little bit about the beginning stage of a relationship. I said there's sort of this hormonal euphoria that's sort of sprinkled over the beginning stages of a relationship and that often that strength of feeling, all those feelings that kick in that we just talked about a second ago can sort of keep us from asking the important questions and looking at the question of whether or not this love is sustainable or not. So I might have left you, if you're dating or thinking about dating, I might have left you in a position where you're thinking, Jonathan, okay, then what do I do? I mean, how do I make sure that I'm paying attention to the real indicators of lasting love rather than just leaning into the feelings? And that's a great question. The question we could, we could sort of phrase it like this, how do you find the right one? As soon as I say that, I know I got to deal with one challenge, and that is that if you're married, you're, you're, it's probably likely that you're thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me. But I want to encourage you to take the long look here. If you're like me, maybe you have family members that are going to be dating soon. I have two teenage daughters, so dating is on my mind, not because I'm going to be dating, but because my daughters are going to be dating. Or maybe you have a friend that's in a relationship, and you've been asked by your friend what you think about it, and your first impulse is just to give your impression, but I have to tell you, your impression is irrelevant. Whether or not you think this person has attractive qualities isn't really going to be the best help that you can give that person who's asking you. The bigger question is, is the person that they're with going to be able to have sustained love towards them? And that's what we're talking about today. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about how do you find the right one and And within that, we're going to be talking about how do you be the right one? Because the same character traits that you should be looking for are the same character traits that you should be living out in your relationship. Because, and I know it's almost been cliche, that if you want to find the right one, you should be the right one. But I'm going to take it a step further. If you're married, you're going to have to work on a daily basis to be the right one. It's not something that you lock in at one point and you're always going to easily be able to do this. You're going to have to die to self daily to be the right one in your marriage. So don't go offline if you're married. This applies to you as well. But I do want to say, this is a special moment for those of you who are dating or are going to think about dating, because this is one of the most important decisions you are ever going to make in your life. When you walk down the aisle with somebody, your future is tethered to that person, and you want to make sure that it's the right person. So we're going to talk about this. Now, why is this difficult? Why is it difficult to find the right one? Why isn't it easy? Well, God gives us uh, an answer to that in 1 Samuel, where God says the Lord doesn't see things the way that people see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what God is saying is that it's, it's typical, it's normal, in fact, it's instinctual for us to look at how people present themselves and to ask ourselves the question, are they attractive to me? As a matter of fact, one of the first things that you'll hear from a friend about somebody that they're dating is how attractive the other person is. There's nothing wrong with dating someone who's attractive, but that question is really irrelevant when it comes to sustained, lasting love. God looks at the heart, God looks at the inside, and God is saying that often there is a difference between the way people present themselves and the way that they are. Another way we could say it is that some people interview very well, they do a terrible job, they do a terrible job when they're on the job. That's been me, right? When I, early on, when Wendy and I first got married, I got into a job that was terrible for me, it was a terrible fit, but I got the job because I interviewed well. Some people interview well for marriage. Through the dating process, everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're so wonderful. Look, they're opening the door for them, they're getting flowers. 
flowers for them. You know, they're focusing so much on the other person. But there is a, there's sort of a change that happens when suddenly that person feels that they have the other person. We sign the marriage license, we put rings on fingers, and now I've conquered that, I move on to something else, and love takes a back seat. So you don't want to marry somebody who interviews well but doesn't do well once they get the job. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Now what we're seeing in this passage is that while we look at charisma, and charisma is just a word in our language for how attractive is somebody. So we look at how attractive they are. God looks at character. So this is a question of how well do they attract me? Are they charismatic? Do they attract me well? Their character is a matter of how well will they be able to love me? the choices that they make, the kind of person that they are, how prepared are they to make the sacrifices necessary to love me the way that God has called them to love me? So another question would be, how do you look at the heart? That's maybe even a bigger question than how do you find the right one? It's maybe even more universal question. How do you look at character rather than charisma? And that's what we're going to look, about in, look at in this message. And I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament um, that really shows us two characters, one that you would absolutely want to marry and one that would be the last person on earth that you would want to marry. And we're going to contrast their character, the real person on the inside and the way that it showed up in their behavior. There's going to be three main characters, but the, the first two uh, are a husband and wife. I'm going to introduce them to you in a story. So this is in 1 Samuel chapter 25. The Bible says there was a wealthy man from man who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. Two things you need to know here. One is that this means that Nabal was extremely wealthy. In this society, having money was not the sign that you were wealthy. Having livestock was the sign that you were wealthy. So Nabal was obscenely rich. And this happens to be sheep shearing time, which was the time when products would actually be taken to market. Not only would he have all this livestock, but actually the money would be rolling in as well. It would be a time of feasting. It would be a time of celebration. So we've caught Nabal. He's, he's rich, and we've caught him at a great time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. Now, we need to stop for a second and talk about the meaning of these two names. In Hebrew, it's very important that, that people were named or nicknamed after their character. Abigail means daddy's pride and joy, or the one who brings daddy joy. And the fact that the Bible says she was sensible and beautiful, in the Hebrew, this really means that she was pleasant and beautiful both inside and out. The kind of uh, girl that any dad would, would just love to raise and the kind of person that any man would love to marry. Abigail was a, a sweet and wonderful person. But this is contrasted in the Bible with Nabal. The Bible says Nabal was crude and mean in all his dealings. Nabal's name means fool or moron. Right? And the fact the Bible says that he was crude and mean, as we'll talk about in a minute, means that he was both stubborn and he was an idiot. So sometimes I think we see this play out in real life and we wonder, how does daddy's pride and joy marry moron? It doesn't make any sense. But again, sometimes people interview well and don't do so hot once they get the job. So the Bible says, David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now David suddenly is a third character in our story. And we're gonna, he's going to kind of play a, a back seat to Nabal and Abigail. Those are our main characters. But I do need to introduce you to David and help you know what his significance is in this story. David would, would one day become the most important king of Israel, the best king of Israel. And he's known in the scripture as a man after God's own heart. But David will be the second king of Israel. Early on in the Bible, God was Israel's king, and that was a special time, and really, that was the best thing for Israel, as you can imagine. Can you imagine being governed by a system where God is the king? That would be fantastic. 
Unfortunately, the people of Israel got jealous of other nations who had human beings for kings. They demanded a human being, and so God gave them what they wanted, which wasn't best for them in this case. But Saul was an attractive, good-looking person with a good pedigree. The, the ball was teed up for him to be successful, but he was a person who interviewed well but had character issues. And as a result of his character issues, God would take the kingdom away from Saul and actually give it to David later on. But what you need to know is that we're not there yet. David has not become the king yet. This is at a time when David is younger, Saul is still king, and as you can imagine, with Saul being the current king and David being anointed by God to be the the new king as time goes on, this means that Saul really has a vendetta against David, and Saul's going after David with everything that he's got, and David's having to run for his life. So now David is in the wilderness, and he's gathered together an army of about 600 guys, and when I say the word army, be careful not to go to this place in your mind where you see this sort of regimented, well-dressed, uniformed group of people, well-trained. This isn't what David had. David had a ragtag group of guys that nobody else wanted who were willing uh, to serve as private security for a little bit of pay. And that's what David and his men were doing. They're in this wilderness. And what they've been doing is they've been guarding Nabal's 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. What they were doing, and, and actually this was because Nabal's shepherds brought the, the flocks toward where David and his men were so that David and his men would serve as a wall of protection to keep them from losing their sheep and goats. That was the fear. The fear was that they would lose some of Nabal's wealth and David and his men made sure that that didn't happen. Now, sometimes this could be problematic because often when you would, you would bring your flocks toward this ragtag group of people and ask them to be security for you, it would create new problems of its own. They would be rude and mean to your shepherds, or sometimes they would sort of steal some of the flocks on their own, knowing that they were stealing less from you than you would lose if they weren't protecting you, and it was sort of just an understood wink, nudge deal that, okay, they're going to steal from us, but it's the lesser of two evils. But David wasn't like that, and his men weren't like that. As you're going to see in the story, David and his men had done the honorable thing and the right thing by Nabal and his flocks. They had not taken anything that wasn't theirs. They had protected Nabal's uh, investment, and they only asked for payment when the time was right, and they only asked in the right way. So that's where we come to the story in 1 Samuel 25. When David hears that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal, peace and prosperity to you, your family and everything that you own. This isn't a threat. This is a gracious message and a request for payment. I'm told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men. They'll tell you this is true. Honestly, David needed to say this because it was so common that whoever you would hire to take care of your your flocks would actually kind of steal some from you. David's saying, I know you're going to not believe this, but go check with your men. We never took anything from them. So would you be kind to us? This is a request, not a demand. Since we have come at a time of celebration, please share any provisions that you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. They're not even demanding anything specific. They're just asking whatever you have laying around. This is a time of excess. Could you please share some of that excess with us? And he said, would you share it with your friend David? And there's, a, there's sort of an implied message there because David is from the same tribe that Nabal is from. There's the sense that, of course, since we're from the same tribe of Israel, Nabal's going to want to share with us, especially given that we've performed a valuable service for him. So David's young men came and gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. And Nabal comes out screaming. We're going to find this out later because when one of the servants tells Abigail about this whole story, he says that Nabal was screaming at David's men. 
Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. And it is true that David, who had once worked for King Saul, was now running away from Saul. But it wasn't because David disrespected Saul or that he was trying to get out from underneath Saul's authority. David was just trying to save his own life because Saul was after him and he was unfairly after him and David was doing what he had to do to survive. Nabal knows that he's mischaracterizing this. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Now David is typically a very measured person. He doesn't do anything rashly, not usually, but this, this hit him at the wrong moment. We know what that's like. Sometimes something hits you at the wrong moment, you sort of react out of emotion. So David tells us, Ben, get your swords, and he takes 400 of his guys with him. He leaves 200 of them to guard the equipment. And meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, hey, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. So he's saying, it's legit. They did something for us. They were deserving of payment. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. And little did the servant know, it wasn't just going to be for Nabal and his family. David is getting ready to promise that every male individual in Nabal's household, probably including the servant that we're talking about, is going to die because of Nabal's bad choices. And then the servant says, and this is, he's talking about Nabal, he's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Have you ever known somebody that nobody can confront, nobody can talk to them about anything that's not perfectly positive because they go to pieces? And that's exactly what's happening here with Nabal. Abigail wasted no time, and here's what she does. David had originally asked for provisions, so Abigail gathers all these provisions together, and she heads out toward David, and she doesn't tell Nabal where she's going or what she's doing. Doesn't really matter. Nabal doesn't care. Nabal's getting ready to throw a huge kegger. He's throwing a huge party because it's sheep shearing time, and he's not paying a lot of attention to Abigail, and if you want my two cents, my hunch is he never really paid much attention to Abigail. And so she's going in to try to deal with this problem. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she sees David and his men coming toward her. David had just been saying, so he had been rehearsing and venting about this. A lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. So when Abigail sees David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all the blame in this situation. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal's a moron. I've been married to the guy. He's an idiot. I get that. Please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool just as his name suggests, but I never even saw the young man you sent. She's implying if I'd seen him, I I would have taken care of it. Now, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is the present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty. She's reaffirming the anointing of God on David's head. For you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you've not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you. She's kind of mentioning Saul here. Your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Isn't it interesting that she's talking to David, a person who years ago had killed the giant that all of Israel was afraid of with a slingshot? 
She's sort of reminding him, look, you haven't had to fight your battles with a sword. You haven't had to do this in your power. God has been the one who's fought your battles for you. It's been through God's power that you've been able to handle the battles that nobody thought that you would be able to face. And he's kind of getting into the wrong zone and she's gently kind of prodding him to let him know that he needs to be back in that zone where he's letting the Lord fight his battles. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. She's saying, once you have the appointment, once you're set up as king, you don't want to look back on this and feel that this is a a, a blemish on on your record, a stain in your past life. You You want to make sure that when you're appointed to king, you feel as though all the way up until that time, you've lived consistent with what God wanted you to do. She said, then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. And he's sort of slipping in a mention of her name and what her name means there. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I've heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. So then Abigail returns home. She finds out Nabal's in the middle of partying. He's super drunk. She's not going to bother to tell him what happened when he's drunk. But she does confront him with the reality of how dangerous what he did was once he's sober. And when he finally has to come to grips with how stupid he was and how close he came to dying and all the men of the household, he has a stroke. He's shocked by his own stupidity enough that he has a cardiovascular event and he lays paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck him and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. But this is cool. Check this out. Then David said, messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. She becomes the queen of Israel because David understands the value of what he's seen in this woman. That deep down, she's a woman of tremendous character. Nabal is a person you would never, ever want to marry. It's the person you want to avoid. It's the last person that you want to be in a serious relationship with. And Abigail is the type of person that you want to be in a relationship with. So what can we do with this story? How can we sort of parse it out so that we can use it as we think about finding the right one and being the right one? I think what we should do is just look at the differences between the two individuals' character. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. And if you're dating, I would encourage you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and make a little checklist here. Because I think this may be helpful for you in evaluating where you are in your dating relationship. Since we have a DeLorean on stage, I've got the green lights and red lights of character. Abigail in this story is a peacemaker and Nabal is a troublemaker. Now, the difference between peacemaking and troublemaking is this. There are some people who can come to a negatively charged situation, a a bad situation, a volatile situation, and somehow neutralize it. Their grace, their spirit, their wisdom, what they bring to the situation can take something that was really bad and turn it into a neutral or a positive situation. That's a peacemaker. And the Bible says that peacemakers are happy individuals. And in Jesus' manifesto Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed or happy are those who are the peacemakers. But a troublemaker, on the other hand, is the opposite of that. A troublemaker can come into a neutral situation or a situation that's not pitched in any one direction or another, and somehow they can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and create a problem where there wasn't a problem in the first place. 
My hunch is, if you're dating someone, it's not very difficult for you to figure out which bracket they belong in because it's not difficult to notice the difference between a peacemaker and a troublemaker. A peacemaker is a person that everybody wants to have around because they seem to bring calm to difficult moments, just as Abigail brought calm to this very, very difficult situation. But if you're dating a Nabal, what you notice is somehow there's always a problem. There's always an issue. There's always a challenge. There's always something to nag about. There's always something to nitpick about. There's always something to blow up into a big problem. It's just somebody that if you're in a long-term relationship with, you just need to buy stock in antacids because you're around them, your stomach churns the whole time because it's like, why can we never have peace? The second thing you're going to notice in this story is that Abigail is pleasant and Nabal is shamelessly difficult. Now, the reason that I picked these adjectives is based off of the Hebrew meanings of their names. So the Bible tells us that Abigail, based off of her name and and based off of the descriptors that it gives us, she's pleasant on the inside and out. And you know what it's like to be around a pleasant person. I'm not talking about charisma. Charisma is something that is just, is an it factor that attracts us to people. But, But being pleasant is this genuineness that comes through such that you just enjoy being in this person's company. But Nabal was shamelessly difficult. And we get it from uh, this passage that says he was crude and mean. Crude here means hard-headed. He was stubborn. And then mean just means he was wrong or he was evil. So he wasn't just wrong. He locked it in. My dad has taught me this over the course of my life, so I have to give him credit for this. But there are four types of people uh, in this world. The first type of person is right and stubborn. Now, People that are right and stubborn, this tends to be type A personality. They can be a little difficult to deal with, um, but at least the one thing you got to give them is that most of the time, they're right on the nose. They are accurate, and so uh, maybe not real easy to live with because their stubbornness, their, their pig-headedness may make them not really easy to relate to, but at least you got to give them the fact that they tend to be correct. The green light kind of person, though, in this situation is a person who is right and humble, and that's an Abigail. She's correct, and she's got to confront David with some hard truths. If you read through the passage where she's talking to David, she's got to tell David some tough things. She's reminding him of some things that could be very confrontational, but she's humble in the way that she goes about it. Humility will take you farther than being right. My wife and I have had the the blessing over the years to spend time with people that are at the top of their game, either as Christian authors or Christian counselors. And you sit down with these people to dinner and you want to hear from them. You want to hear their stories and you want to hear about uh, their ministries. But it's so interesting that if you talk to people that are at the very top of their game, they will immediately turn the conversation back to you. They want to know about your life. They want to know about what's going on in your world. And what that is, is that is humility coming out that shows an esteem for others higher than they esteem themselves. This was something that was true in Abigail's life. She was right and she was humble. Well, a third kind of person is wrong and humble. And these people are, they're also a little hard to live with. The one thing you got to give them is eventually they find their way around to the truth. Because they're humble enough that they'll accept feedback. But they start off wrong a lot of the time. So this is a person who a lot of times has to learn the hard way. It's really difficult for them because they start off wrong, but they do learn. They are humble enough to make a course adjustment when the time is, when the time is right. But the red light kind of person, a Nabal, is wrong and stubborn. They are stupid and they lock it in. They're not smart. They make poor decisions. They're wrong. But they are so confident in the fact that they're doing the right thing that it's almost as though they live in another world. And you can't confront them and you can't deal with it because not only are they wrong, but they've locked it in. 
So the next thing we're going to talk about with character is Abigail has beautiful ways. And this is another thing that we sort of borrow from what the Bible says about her in Hebrew. And my dad would say that my my great-grandmother would say this about certain ladies. She would say she has beautiful ways. And the idea there is that this person is beautiful on the inside. What this person does is beautiful. Nabal, on the other hand, had ugly ways. This word mean here can also be translated ugly. The word that comes across as mean from the Hebrew can also be translated ugly. What the Bible is saying is he had ugliness on the inside. Now we don't know what Nabal was like on the outside, but we do know he was a very successful man. So it could be that he was super charismatic. Could be he was attractive. Could be he was fun to be around. But on the inside there was ugliness. Nabal was crude and mean in all his dealings. So a big question is, Where is that person that you're dating? What are they like on the inside? Is there beauty on the inside or is there ugliness? And the reason that I say that is because I'll work sometimes with a premarital couple where it's clear that there's a part of a person's fiance that they hope doesn't come out in the session. That they hope that person doesn't say or do something that makes something apparent to me that has been apparent to them for a long time. There's some ugliness there that they're trying to protect me from. They don't want their pastor to see that ugliness. And it's probably not just me. They probably don't want their parents to see that ugliness. They probably don't want their friends to see that ugliness. They want to hide that away. And as a result, they they continue to excuse things that they shouldn't excuse. They continue to put up with things that they shouldn't put up with. And they know it's not cool because why would you hide it from people that you respect if it was cool? They know it's not cool. You want the person that you're dating to be beautiful on the inside that you don't have to make excuses for them and you don't have to hide part of who they are from people that you respect. The next thing is Abigail, a green light person, takes responsibility, but Nabal blames others. Check this out. This is uh, Nabal's uh, words to David's men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Inherent in what he's saying is, look, you could look at me and think I'm not doing the right thing by providing provisions for him. But you know who's really the mess up here? You know who's really the problem? This guy, because he ran away from Saul. There's something about a person who is a Nabal, that it's like they walk around with a blame thrower. They're always looking for who can, I, who can I shift the blame to? And you can never actually confront them about something that is a fault in their own life because they will always find a way to make it somebody else's fault. It's always this person's fault. It's always this organization's fault, but it's never something that they're willing to take responsibility for on their own. Contrast this with Abigail. I accept all the blame in this matter. You say, now Jonathan, that's not right. After all, she hasn't done anything wrong. Well, here's the deal. She knows that God keeps track of who's done the right thing and who's done the wrong thing. What she's saying is, I'm willing to take responsibility for making this better. One of the things that we know from research is predictive of divorce is defensiveness. And in marriage, we get defensive in fights. Because the other person says something about something that maybe we're doing wrong or handling wrong, and our first impression is to be defensive, which is the refusal of taking responsibility and saying, it's not my problem, it's your problem, you're the problem here. But a person who is in a sustainable love relationship is willing to say, all right, let's set the, set the question of fault aside. I'm going to be responsible to do what I can to make this situation better. Well, we're coming toward the end here. Abigail also embraced the truth in this. She embraced the truth about her husband. She said, he's a fool. She embraced the truth about David. You've got a future ahead of you. You don't want to make a mistake here. And she embraced the truth about what needed to happen, 
We need to make sure that we've done the right thing for these people who've provided a service to us. But on the other hand, Nabal can't be reasoned with. You could sit there, you could talk to him until you're blue in the face, you're not going to get a reasonable answer from him. And his servant said that. He's so ill-tempered that no one can ever talk to him. You want to know why Nabal had a, had a stroke? Nabal had a stroke because he didn't understand how stupid he was. He thought he was doing just fine. The reason he thought he was doing just fine is because whenever anybody tried to tell him he wasn't doing just fine, he wouldn't listen to him. So he had this idea in his head of how well he was doing, and that was so far from reality that once reality finally smacked him in the head, it shocked him so much, he had a stroke. This is what happens when a person can't be reasoned with, is they don't stay they don't stay aware of how they impact other people. And as a result, they build up an idea in their head about how they are with people. And it's so different from reality. And once reality finally smacks them in the head, it's almost too late to do anything about it. Finally, Abigail is asking, what does God want? And Nabal is asking, what do I want? Check this out. This is Nabal speaking, and I want you to check how much this is about Nabal. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? It's all about him. Contrast that with Abigail. As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you, from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. Let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. Your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. You know, one of the Number one ways that you can know whether you're with the right person, ask yourself, are they all about themselves or are they all about God? I have a, a rule that in general, I won't marry two people who don't both profess to me that they're believers in Christ. I think the scripture is pretty clear that a believer uh, is unwise to marry an unbeliever. And so I've met many times with couples that were wanting to get married and the first question I asked them is, are they both believers and Jesus Christ, but a bigger question, and one that I can't, even if they told me the answer is yes, I wouldn't be able to vet the answer. A bigger question is, do they both follow God? Do they both orient their life around God? And honestly, it's those two people who know the reality there. They've been around each other enough, they should begin to know, are they all about themselves, or are they all about God? You say, now Jonathan, does it matter that much? You're, you're, you're acting like this issue of picking the right person is very complex and it's very difficult. Does it matter as much as you say it matters? It matters because we're talking about a lifetime of love. I want to share something with you here as we close. There's a, a man who is a hero to me. He was a uh, president of Columbia University, a Christian school, um, for 22 years. His name was Dr. Robert McCulkin. And his wife was diagnosed very early on in life with early onset Alzheimer's. At 59, she was diagnosed. And by 1990, and if my numbers are correct, she'd had the disease for eight or nine years at that point. It became very, very clear that the university needed 100% of Dr. McQuilkin's time and, and his wife Muriel needed 100% of his time. He was going to have to make a decision. And he made that decision and he stood in front of his student body at chapel and he shared a quick word with them 
about the decision he had made. And as I put this beautiful couple's picture up on the screen, I want you to hear that clip from his chapel speech that day. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Dennis Rainey is the president of Family Life, an organization that provides tons of resources for Christian families. And he said he called his wife up when he had first heard this clip of this speech. And he asked his wife, he said, I'm getting ready to do this major speaking event, couples from all over the nation. Do you think I should tell this story? And Barbara Rainey said, yes, I think you should tell the story. And she said as she began to weep, she asked her husband, by the way, will you love me like that? This is a big deal. It's a big deal. I'll tell you the same thing I would tell my 16-year-old daughter. It's a big, big deal. Whether you're going to be with somebody who loves you like that to make a choice to find somebody who's going to love you in the way that God loves you. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.